Uh, welcome to the DDGs in Vietnam and lessons for the Royal Australian Navy Seminar, hosted by the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. I'm Vice Admiral Peter Jones, a member of the Naval Studies Group within AXACS, and this seminar will form uh, the second of three episodes on the Charles F. Adams class destroyers in Vietnam. This series is produced in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute of Australia. This episode is um, proudly supported by Navantia Australia, who is the designer of the new Hobart-class destroyers. We've, we thank Navantia for their generous support of this episode. In this, the second episode, we'll examine the technical and logistic aspects of the RNDDG's service. The, the first speaker is Admiral Peter Purcell, who will cover technical matters. Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, David. Thank you, James. The RAN has benefited enormously from the decision to buy US rather than British in the 1960s. And I think the fundamental capability supporting the decision to procure the DDGs was the capability of the Tata missile system, as has been pointed out, and David gave us a rundown on how that decision was arrived at. To me, the success of the DDGs in shaping the RAN needs to be assessed against the impact that this initial capability procurement had on the evolution of the REN's current anti-air warfare capability. And to me, this is probably the greatest impact of the DDGs on the RAN. There is another domain of impact which has been alluded to already, and that is on the sustainment dimension. Procurement of the DDGs for the first two ships delivered in 65 introduced the REN to the US material domain in all, it, in all its dimensions. In a material sense, our response to was to adopt the full spectrum that came with these platforms and their unique systems. We managed them as an extension of the US fleet, with the USN very much parent navy to our ships. The USN provided the foreground and background to our technical and logistic management of the ships, building and outfitting them for us, giving us access to their systems and expertise, including their supply and management systems, and most importantly, plugging us into their class growth path. The Vietnam experience added a lived experience and an urgency to our understanding and ability to operate within a USN-derived operational and sustainment environment. Our ability to manage the life cycles of the current and future fleets reflects much that we have learned from the DDG experience and provides useful measures of how experience with this class has shaped the RAN. My starting point for this discussion is uh, my Vietnam experience. And my starting point for that is that my ship Hobart was hit by friendly fire and as Robert pointed out to you, uh, two killed and seven injured. This raised a lot of questions both then and in hindsight and for many of these I don't have answers but I table them for your consideration. And I note a number of other players who are on board during that confrontation. Uh, if I've got wrong answers, please jump up and correct us. 
The perspective that I'll offer you, of course, is that of a WE lieutenant in his first professional posting. So any nonsense, you may discount it. <laughs> I raise the incident because it address and addresses real-world fighting issues, particularly the relationship between technology and doctrine, and it provides a point of comparison against today's approaches. The context of the incident, as I understand it, started with intelligence that the Viet Cong were resupplying the garrison on Tiger Island, 13 miles east of Cap Lai, and Cap Lai was a Viet Cong radar installation. The resupply activities were happening at night. As well, rumours had it that the Viet Cong were operating helicopters from the island. Elements of the US 7th Fleet, including Hobart, and US aircraft operating from Thailand were asked to counter this. On the 16th of June, and this is 1968, a US patrol boat was sunk off the island with a loss of five lives. On the 17th of June, the crews of Boston and the destroyers USS Edson and HMAS Hobart were attacked. We were the only ones to suffer loss of life. All ships were mistakenly attacked by 7th Air Force jet fighters. Hobart detected the aircraft approaching, identified it as friendly, but without IFF showing, before the aircraft attacked. And it attacked with three Sea Sparrow missiles, all of which hit the ship. Some questions. Could Hobart have tracked the aircraft and frightened it off with fire control radar? David has already suggested David Leaf was going to do that. Uh, technically, yes. But under the rules of engagement in place, no. Because the requirement not to engage unless the aircraft performed a hostile act. Bringing a fire control radar to bear would have caused the aircraft to go into auto evasion manoeuvres. And if those aircraft were damaged, coming back from the Vietnam operations, that was considered to be a much higher priority than any other mishap that might happen. I make the observation, however, that the rules were in place to protect aircraft from even benign engagement. And this was appropriate, given the Vietnam era environment. Were rules in place to protect naval assets from friendly fire? I don't know the answer to that. My second question, had Hobart sought headquarters command approval to engage, how long would this have taken? I understood at the time that it would have taken several minutes to achieve. Why didn't Hobart engage after the first hit, given that there was a three and a half minute interval between the first missile and the second two arriving? The answer, of course, is that the fire control systems were no longer operational. After the final hit, Hobart opened fire with Mount 51 in local control. And I understand it was the leading seaman in, in the mount that uh, made the decision to open fire, which raises another command issue. Why couldn't the aircraft differentiate between a cruiser, 13,500 tonnes, and a helicopter or small supply vessel? I believe the answer to that is that the Sea Sparrow system, its display technology was an A-scan display, one of those little cathode ray blips on which a helicopter, a small ship, or a cruiser all look the same. Why did Hobart suffer significantly more damage than the two US ships? Uh, the answer to that is Hobart had a ship's boat missing from the starboard side, creating a very large corner reflector, which became the aim point for all three missiles. 
Why was Edson attacked 15 minutes after Hobart was hit? Uh, the common op operations picture for that area was being maintained by Hobart, at least the Navy picture was being maintained ho by Hobart as the task unit commander and the capability was lost due to battle damage. A common operations picture between Navy and Air Force may or may not have existed, I don't know. When did we confirm that we've been attacked by a friendly aircraft? The next morning when fragments of the missile were examined. Was ESM a feature of Hobart's capability? Certainly the Sea Sparrow fire control system lock onto the ship was not registered as an event to trigger a ship's fire control response. Why was the intelligent response time to the changing situation so poor? I don't have an answer. I wonder, in fact, if the patrol boat sinking on the preceding day may have been assessed as a measure of increased threat rather than a case for improved coordination of friendly fire. Was the incident investigated? Yes, by the US, but I'm not aware that the RAN investigated and I'm not aware of the US outcome. And those who serve with us that I have spoken to are not aware of that either. So you then ask the final question, what's the point of an anti-air missile system whose reaction time is much faster than the command and control decision time? And the answer is that uh, the reality of positive psychology of having the system outweighed the limitations to its use. As well as this, it was an asymmetric war in which the Allies were applying a full frontal approach in anticipation of producing a similar response from the enemy. The question this symposium is asking is, did we learn from this? With no investigational follow-up analysis to my knowledge, the RAN's learning from this incident was not specific, but rather an evolution over time and in conjunction with other ship experiences from that time. In the immediate term, the RAN's consciousness was raised to new dimensions of collateral damage, and I was pleased to hear what Perth was planning to do in the event that they were subjected to the, a similar attack. The other things we learned, the need for command responsiveness to match the scenario, and I'll come back to that theme. The need for improved inter-service interoperability and the need for better ship signature management. The incident provided the RAN with a clear demonstration that the capability edge is far more complex and more complete than its underpinning technologies. In the longer term, the Vietnam experience has become part of our aggregate experience and in parallel with US capability and technology developments can be seen in the RAN's leading edge technologies in a range of areas. C4I, tactical and strategic picture compilation, real-time communications and data transfer, inter-service interoperability, ship signature management, and the move to autonomous automated weapon systems from NULCA and CIWS to Aegis. But the caveat is always there that we need to be clever enough to develop the protocols to allow their use. It can also be seen in improved doctrine, which is beyond the scope of this brief, except to note that command and control in a denied and disconnected environment remains a major challenge for the ADF today. Vietnam also provided an object lesson in how to manage ship classes. After it was hit, Hobart returned to Subic Bay for repairs, and the most complicated of these was to restore one channel of the Tata missile fire control system to service. 
We were exposed to the effectiveness of the US and type desk within its Naval Sea Systems Command. In a month, the type desk had gathered the assets to replace one of the fire control systems, the engineering expertise to manage and oversight this, and authorise the yard resources to implement it. The job was all done in a month. The lesson for us from this is that if we want to be a parent navy to ship classes, this is the sort of responsiveness and sustainment we need to aspire to. The DDGs and their Vietnam configuration were a step forward from much of the technology in the rest of the Australian fleet. This provided the opportunity for a generation of officers and sailors to gain experience in both the operations and sustainment of technologies that would be important in later configurations of this class and in new builds. Some of the key areas in which we were introduced to the future were self-contained minimum manned missile systems compared to the British equivalents of the day, precision fire control radars, semi-active missile guidance and phased array radars. These now form the technology base of the RAN's anti-air warfare systems. Post-Vietnam. Post-Vietnam, the DDGs continued to provide the RAN with a technology lead, particularly in the 1970s, with the introduction of the digital data system and digital tactical data systems. Again, these systems have impacted not only on technology, but also on doctrine. I was the trials officer for the uh, introduction of those systems in Perth in the United States. We collected an enormous amount of data, brought it back, advised the Naval Board, and now when I look back on that, uh, we made the assumption that command decisions would be made instantaneously. The response time was the mechanical or the technical response time, uh, which is nonsense. The Vietnam experience gave us a base from which to pursue some elements of future capability. Threatened technology changes have given rise to other technology drivers. If we step forward 15 years from Vietnam to the mid-80s, we see the RAN seeking technology advances in a range of areas. Multi-target detection and tracking, precision engagement at long range, adaptive sensors, realisation of human material potential through simulation, reliable and secure C-cubed I systems, improved communications connectivity and bandwidth, low observable materials and design, higher availability of fleet units. If we step forward another 20 years to the 2000s, we still have that range of technology challenges and we've got new ones on us now. Advanced information systems, unmanned vehicles, anti-missile ballistic defence, and of course, always ongoing modernisation of existing capabilities. Harking back to what we learnt from Vietnam, many of the solutions to today's problems will be found through our confidence in doing business with the US and in adopting USN equipment. I see this as part of the ongoing professionalism and cultural shift of the REN derived from the DDG heritage. I suggested in my opening remarks that Navy's current anti-air warfare systems are a measure of the extent Navy's professionalism and culture have been influenced by the DDG procurement and our subsequent relationship with USN. I'm extremely pleased that having made the decision to go with TATA, we have stayed with that decision through the whole evolution of the standard missiles and with the evolution of the fire control systems that deliver those missiles in their far more complex capabilities today. I also suggested that our management of the life cycle of Navy ships with another measure of professional and cultural shift 
In my view, the shift in Navy's approach from a Eurocentric to USA-centric can be seen in a large number of areas, including continuous evolution of requirements, continuous evolution of solutions. Our two key anti-air missiles, Standard and Evolve Sea Sparrow, along with Aegis, are good examples of this. We've gone from a very limited range standard missile and now we're looking at these things in an anti-ballistic missile mode capability. Our confidence to partner, with, to partner with the USN in technology and doctrine development, and NALCA is a good example of this. Harking way back when we did digital TATA, we were in partnership with the United States Navy. The project director running that could not get the funds through Congress for the junior participating tactical data system until he had an overseas buyer and we were the preferred overseas buyer and it was a case of put a dollar down and you've got it, which we eventually did. We have new ways of approaching which I think reflect our US-centric approach as well. Our willingness to share risk and our willingness to reduce total risk. We have now become a partner rather than just a taker to a lot of technologies. We've adopted a systems and holistic approach to new technologies. And the amalgamation of command and control and fire control in Aegis is a good example. We no longer have all of the petitions. We are getting smarter and no longer buying piecemeal add-ons to our systems. We're going for the whole thing. We've seen a reduction in the discontinuity between technology change and procurement timescales. Although we still tend to procure when technologies are proven, and we're at the tail end of production runs. As a small aside, when I was in the States in the mid-70s, I was on the embassy staff, and I recall visiting Moorestown, New Jersey, for what was then the first display of the first phase of the Aegis radar system. Uh, I went there with Raoul Jones. I'm very pleased that 40 years after that, we commissioned our first ship earlier, uh, earlier this year. Not a bad response. But on the positive side, we have now gone into spiral development so that as our American and other allies are enhancing the capabilities of systems in incremental steps, we are finding our way forward to make the decisions and provide the funding to be part of that. And I put that down to our US evolution. In summary, the Navy has changed significantly over the 52 years since acquisition of the DDGs. I see the American influence as clearly visible in the technology we have and are delivering in today's Navy. In my view, the US influence has been extremely positive, both in providing and sustaining capability of US origin. We've also benefited in both acquisition and sustainment from the economies of scale of large class sizes. Where US technologies and capabilities have not been available, and the Anzacs and Collins are good examples of this, the US benefits have been less and we are beginning to understand the real costs of the parent Navy role. And I can't emphasise that enough. When we come to spend monies on a new acquisition, we really don't understand the through life costs. Uh, if we did, we may well be making quite different decisions. Thank you. So the next presentation is logistics um, aspects and is being given by uh, Admiral David Campbell. Thank you, Peter. Good afternoon, all. It, it, it goes without saying that the acquisition of the three uh, DDGs in the 60s 
ushered into the RE in a whole new era and level of operational capability and technical sophistication. Area air defence, 1,200 PSI steam plants, etc. Less well recognised, though, was the profound impact that these ships had on the RAN supply system. For support of these ships, ashore as well as afloat, and this system was sorely tested during the ship's Vietnam deployments. Supply training for the three commissioning crews was carried out in the USA and was comprehensive. Successive crews, however, learnt by osmosis and on the job. As time passed, much knowledge was diluted and even forgotten. I served as the deputy and then the supply officer in Hobart in 69 to 71. None of the original crew were still on board and corporate memory of all that pre-commissioning training had significantly diminished. The naval store side of my duty was substantially new to me. I'd completed the basic supply course in Cerberus in 1967, where the syllabus was essentially pre-DDG. The OIC of the school, Harry Tooth, had been the basic, had been the commissioning deputy of Perth, and while his position was not an instructing one, he nevertheless gave a few lessons on the differences between the DDGs and the rest. Most of our stores training was conducted by a stores chief who had never even seen a DDG. His concept of stores duties was that it was all about completing forms. Of what happened in the actual filling of demands or went on behind the scenes, he had absolutely no concept. You must remember that in those days, the specialisation was supply and secretariat, with the emphasis on secretariat. The successful career path historically was secretariat. Most supply officers busied themselves with captain's office, uh, pay and accounts, that sort of thing. Stores matters, generally speaking, were carried out by ratings, as we called them then, and if at all by officers, then by the special duty specialists. Real interest in supply matters came to officers fairly late in their careers, the advent of the DDG dramatically and definitively changed all that. In the DDG, secretarial pay and accounts, vittling, etc., were as in the rest of the fleet. Different galley equipment, storeroom layout, especially cool and cold rooms, were easily accommodated, but managing naval stores was an entirely new business. Before I get on to that, I should mention a couple of aspects of the captain's office and the pay office. We had electric typewriters that made the DDG's correspondence stand out from the rest of the fleets. We had a comptometer, an extremely fast key-driven calculator, which enabled us to calculate to 12 decimal places foreign exchange. Although what good that was, nobody knew, but at least we could do it. <laughs> Living on board was different. There was a proper barber shop, complete with rotating red and, uh, uh, and white barber pole. That was better than the tiller flats in other ships. There was a proper steam laundry, although it wasn't too many years before it was reduced only to washing stokers overalls. When the ships were new, your shirts would come back complete with a little paper bow tie in a plastic sleeve and a message, your laundry, sir. Accommodation for the sailors was pretty grim. The after seamen's mess deck slept 83, I think, for instance, but at least each bunk had its own ashtray. A dubious luxury, to be sure, but it was more than the other ships had. Nevertheless, sailors liked the DDGs because they were real ships with real armament. The DDG's pipeline for spare and repair parts led straight back to the US Navy. All the documentation was USN. 
we had to learn entirely different system of stores accounting and acronyms. For instance, there were several shelf meters of books in the Naval Stores Office, COSMEL, MRIL, APL, MACRIL, COSEL being the most important. Even stock numbers were different using NATO stock numbers. These manuals were as much engineering publications as supply, and the ship's utter dependence on them forced the engineering and the supply teams much closer together than had hitherto been the case. Elsewhere, the fleet was still using Royal Navy rate books. The engineers' spare gear lockers had no place in a DDG. ABR4, the RAN storekeeping manual, struggled hopelessly to remain relevant. The onboard inventories were enormous, 39,000 line items. There were 13 storerooms. In contrast, from memory, a daring had 7,000 items. All of a sudden, the magnitude and complexity of managing this business struck the supply community and it was sorely equipped to handle the demand. Different ships divided the responsibilities differently, usually respecting the experience of the individual supply officer and his deputy. The enlightened ones had the passer himself being concerned with stores and canteen and bank, with the deputy looking after the division, the captain's office and victualling. In my case, I was also secretary to Comos Desron 1, an anachronism if ever there was one. Modern inventory management hit the RAN with the DDGs. Its fundamental component, configuration management, came to both engineering and supply in a serious way and several related USN practices were adopted. For example, there was validation, an exercise in which every single item of equipment on board, every one, was tagged, identified and recorded. Several members from each department were allocated to this task, which spread over several months while the ship carried out its normal program. The objective was to know what equipment was on board and what its particular configuration was so that it could be supported with certainty. The second part of the exercise was to completely destore the ship in an activity known as soap. Storerooms were then mocked up ashore at Zetland and bins and racks filled with parts to support the identified equipments and only those equipments. All too often, experience had revealed equipments with no support and support with no equipment. Support in this sense included technical documentation the ship was then reloaded, faithfully uh, replicating the mock-ups ashore, and then the entire cycle was repeated. Integrated logistics support then followed into the REN as an intrinsic part of acquisition management. A significant problem was that the administrative computer support to sustain all this activity was simply not available. There was neither the capacity nor the expertise. EDP had been introduced into the Navy in the 60s, about the same time as the DDGs themselves, but priority was given to personnel systems with supply systems lagging far behind. It took years to catch up, even longer with, than the training system. Understanding the USN supply system meant exposure to a whole new world. Authorities such as NAVSUP, NAVMAT, NAVC became important, as did places like SPCC Mechanicsburg, ASO Philadelphia and FIMSO in Washington. The initial arrangements for life cycle support set in place in the DDG acquisition project soon proved to be inadequate. Generations of public servants in the bureaucracy of the superintending naval stores officer found themselves estranged in this brave new world and completely out of their depth. 
their retraining lagged far behind that of their uniform counterparts, and that was laggard enough. Relationships between supply and, uh, or between ships, I should say, and the supply bureaucracy ashore were never particularly close and now became even more distant. Simply put, the system couldn't keep up with the ship's demands and the fleet's growing sophistication in modern supply management left the shore tail far behind. Attempts were made to introduce other modern inventory management practices in the fleet, such as selective uh, item management, but the supply system ashore was incapable of crunching the data to make this a viable activity. In my view, the only thing that helped tide over those initial very difficult years was the fleet's involvement in Vietnam, with ships being deployed as integral units of the 7th Fleet. Unfortunately, all this compounded some of the problems. First was the high operational tempo, which exacted tough demands on the ships and their support. An example was the transfer trays of the 5-inch 54 gun mounts, which often failed and demanded constant rewelding by the ordnance teams. It was pointless expecting these to be supported from home, and so the system was bypassed and local arrangements made in Subic Bay and Yokosuka for repair or replacement. Second, ships enjoyed direct access to that veritable Aladdin's cave, the surf mart at Subic. Ships returned from Vietnam virtually gunnels under with stuff of which the system in Australia had no knowledge. Historical usage data and their management thus became futile even if the computer systems had been able to cope because the data simply wasn't being properly recorded. Parallel problems and opportunities were taking place ashore, both in Navy Office and Garden Island Dockyard. Significant infrastructure, such as the GMLS Mark 13 overhaul facility, was put in place at Garden Island, together with the supporting engineering training. I will observe, though, that 30 years later, as the Naval Support Commander and having to pay for the last DDG refit, Hobarts in 1996, we were contending with problems that had only worsened over the years. Tight configuration management had been lost, disgracefully, and many of the original equipment manufacturers had long ago disappeared. Obtaining spare and repair parts was harder and more expensive than when the ships were new. And by the way, that final refit cost $40 million, which is what the ship cost new. As I said, we were almost entirely dependent on the USN for the provision of the bullets, beans and black oil of logistics. The expertise of the 7th Fleet in afloat logistics had been developed during the Pacific War and it had to be experienced to be believed. A constant stream of supply ships traversed the South China Sea between Yokosuka and Subic. They'd load at one end and gradually discharge their cargoes in a series of underway replenishment operations off the Vietnamese coast. They would reload at the other end, repeat the process, month after month and year after year. It was a simple enough concept but was staggering in its execution. On any day, there was an unbroken line of ships carrying fuel, ammunition, food and spare and repair parts. Our participation in this program was covered in detail in the 1966-67 agreement between the two navies, covering operational matters, administration, logistics, communications, finances. From the logistics point of view, this was pretty seamless affair. A newly built DDG, such as we were, slipped easily into the USN support system. Underway replenishments every other day or so took between one and three hours, with fuel and ammunition often being taken on concurrently. 
They were all hands evolutions and hard yakker at that. Special equipment had to be rigged, magazine whips, davits, shot mats, uh, mats, ammunition corrals. Ammunition came in pallets of 64 rounds, over two tonnes each. We conducted 67 unreps, five vert reps, 23 small boat transfers. We carried out the very first underway replenishment anywhere of a Tartar missile. We got to know the, uh, the replenishment ships very well, Virgo, Arcturus, White Plains, Niagara Falls, all the rest. I particularly love the combat store ships of the Mars class. If M-frames, automatic tensioning devices and refrigerated holds are your thing, these were the ships for you. Beautiful. More than that, to those of us whose unrep experience had been limited to the occasional transfer or transaction with the RFAs of the UK's Far East fleet, it was nothing short of wondrous. Incidentally, uh, two of those AOEs, Sacramento and Camden, uh, each came with half of the steam plant of the Iowa-class battleship Kentucky, which was broken up on the slips in 47, quite by the way. These AOEs were true floating supermarkets, functions of three logistics support ships in the one hull, fleet oiler, ammunition ship and refrigerator store ships. I later wrote a paper passionately advocating the acquisition of such ships for the RAN and nothing came of it. Also transferred were movies. Carriers could push aircraft over the site and write them off with the stroke of a pen. But the paperwork involved in losing a movie was truly monumental. We somehow lost the perils of Pauline, and the experience haunts me to this day. Some support came direct from home by air. This was for uniquely Australian equipment such as ICARA and 975 radar, but most important were the 151 bags of mail. In my deployment, Hobart fired 16,901 rounds of 5-inch. Our magazines carried 1,350 rounds, of which 150, well that was 150 more than our authorised outfit, but was justified on the grounds of operational requirements and the reality of the replenishment schedule. There'd been four or five DDG deployments before mine, and we were the beneficiaries of their accumulated experience. In Vietnam, food became of high importance, second only to mail. We'd sailed from Sydney with the standard 90 days of uh, dry provisions, 30 are frozen, seven are fresh, but thought of reprovisioning re is never far from a puss's mind. We topped up in Subic and whenever and wherever we later came into port, but most of our resupply was done at sea. To give you an idea of the scale of Vittling, we took on 55 tonnes of potatoes, 25 tonnes of meat during that deployment. We had a supplementary vittling allowance to provide for mid-rats a meal in the middle of the night when 100% of the ship's company were awake and hungry. Managing the vittling accounts on a dollar eight per day per person took some cunning enterprise that only pusses are privy to, but we got there. Fruit and veggies for the Americans were of a very high quality. Their flour, being from a harder grain of wheat, made excellent flour, uh, excellent uh, bread, I should say. But their meat was truly awful. It came in frozen boxes known as six-way beef, which meant there were five parts of minced meat to one part of something else. There are only so many ways, <laughs> things you can do with that, and the troops soon complained of hamburgers and uh, savoury mince. What they wanted, they said, were sausages, real sausages. Next time in Subic, the P.O. Cook and I went down to Manila 
to find a meat processor who'd make Australian-style snacks, and after much experimentation, we agreed on the right recipe, and I ordered a tonne or so to be collected when next we came into port. The big day eventually came, and there was much rejoicing. Then came a giant sausage sizzle, followed by an enormous lamentation. The Manila butcher had added uh, American-sized quantities of sugar and spice to our prized recipe and ruined the lot. It all went over the side. Lots of correspondence with the director of naval victualling ensued. Episode reminded me of another experiment we had conducted before deployment, powdered beer. As you know, when operations permitted, beer could be sold. Carrying the stock was not an inconsiderable problem in space and weight, and some genius had come up with the idea of powdered beer. Just add water. So Hobart was selected for the trial. Before a crowd of curious and excited onlookers in the cafeteria, the brew was mixed in large milk churns and taken down to the cold rooms to chill. We had 300 volunteer tasters that first night, none the next. Fuel consumption was between 70 and 100 tonnes a day. Loitering on the gun line didn't uh, consume much, but high-speed dashes were sometimes required to meet a mission, and best speed was always required for transits to and from unreps. All up, we burnt about 11,000 tonnes and steamed over 40,000 miles. The resources of Subic were invaluable, apart from David's dubious delights of a longer po. We had special crypto equipment on loan from the USN that wasn't part of our normal REN outfit and not covered by the support umbrella. In desperate needs of parts uh, one day, I was able to trade some of Captain Swan's single malt and got the job done. Beer was another useful commodity to trade with the natives, but what we chiefly coveted was access to that surf mart, a sort of naval supermarket of commonly demanded stuff. We'd buy it by the trolley load. Also in Subic was the wonderful mobile technical unit, a dedicated team of specialists, uh, both service and civilian, who assisted in all manner of tasks, including gun barrel replacements. By the way, uh, we had prepositioned stuff in Subic, uh, gun barrels and tail shafts, for example, and drums of shipside grey. Actually, it was green, which was why nobody pinched it. I had dealings with a disbursing officer in Subic to replenish my stock of US dollars. For reasons I never understood and still don't, all our transactions on board were in US currency, pay, banking, canteen, cash account. It was a major revolution both before and after deployment to convert the ship and was a real pain. Some years later, I was on the staff of the Naval Attaché in Washington, and one of my functions was the reconciliation and certification of USN billings, which were charges for goods and services purchased by our ships. Some bills came through years after the fact, and reconciliation was nigh on impossible in many cases. With the exception of my own time in Hobart, of course, most of our record-keeping was atrocious. There was no standard procedure other than the rule that for refuelling the tanker's figures were always right. One of the most complex set of buildings had to do with the construction of our third DDG Brisbane. They'd been built by the Defoe Shipbuilding Company in Bay City, Michigan, under a US Navy contract, which meant that in fact we bought the ships from the USN under this newfangled foreign military sales arrangement and not from the shipbuilder direct. The audit trail was interesting to say the very least and there were all sorts of other complications, for instance, Brisbane's gun mounts were second-hand, having been taken from the carrier Forrestal, and I was eventually able to get a nice discount for those. 
The major problem was that although Defoe could build a beautiful ship, their business management skills were a bit slack. Defoe was most obliging and accommodated all sorts of configuration charge, uh, changes asked for by the RAN <coughs> standby crews. Trouble was that few of these changes had been documented on either side, with the result that Defoe was out of pocket by several millions. I've got no doubt that the RAN ships contributed in no small manner to that company's going broke. I should say something about personnel. It was an interesting time in the Navy's history. The traumas of Voyager, Frankie Evans, were still a fresh memory. We'd only recently experienced the emotional and financial upheavals of group pay. We served under the unforgiving Naval Discipline Act of 1957. People could still get discharged for moral turpitude and were. Women were in separate services of the Navy but not really in it. The Scott report had vindicated the naval divisional system. There was a good deal of a recent operational experience, mainly from the Far East Strategic Reserve. Within the fleet, there was the DDG group, definitely the first 11, and the rest. There was the excitement of an unprecedented expansion of naval capability, new ships, aircraft and submarines, and above all, the challenge of Vietnam in our splendid new ships. Despite all this, I feel it's little exaggeration to say that the RAN of that period was closer to Nelson's traditions and practices than to the Navy of 2017, half a century later. Well, if not Georgian, then certainly Edwardian. So it was a complex and dynamic personal environment that the people serving in Hobart found themselves in. Morale was pretty good, as I recall, uh, despite of, or perhaps because of, the pressures of uh, intense operational service. And of course there were the other usual contributors, ships program, food, mail, leave, movies, intermess competitions, etc. The folders at the captain's table were relatively few, although I can recall some spectacular exceptions. As the ship's de facto legal officer, I had some fantastic cases, including having a defender charge successfully, I'm pleased to report, of desecration of Filipino maidenhood. Venereal disease, while not rife, was a terrible reality. It was a different welfare environment too compared with today. Nobody was repatriated, although there were some very tragic cases on the home front. We were blessed by an excellent naval social workers organisation. A lot of effort was put into sharing the workload as evenly as possible. The WIO took over upper deck maintenance around Tata checkout. I took over the cafeteria. In defence watches, I was AA control officer, a time-wasting exercise if ever there was one. Meanwhile, some of my cooks and stewards were in the magazines. I declined to be off today in harbour because that was an always hectic time for me in storing ship, etc. But I compensated by occasional bridge watch keeping in the dogs. We were all very busy all the time. Much is made of the hostile reception that Vietnam veterans received upon their return being shunned and condemned, spat upon and reviled. I know that behaviour went on and was even widespread, but that was not my own personal experience or of that of anybody that I personally knew. To be sure, the tugs wouldn't touch us and the wharfies wouldn't handle our lines in Port Adelaide upon our return, but that sort of industrial reaction on one pretext or another was hardly anything out of the ordinary. Both press and public made critical and caustic comment but ill-informed bigotry was nothing new either. We'd never heard of PTSD at the time, although years later, 
I was often asked to lend my support for wild and fictitious claims for compensation for imagined physical and mental traumas. Matters gradually stabilised after Vietnam. Much had been observed and learnt. Personal exchange programs for both uniformed and civilian officers were established. I myself attended the Navy Supply Corps School at Athens, Georgia, and I later undertook specialist ILS training with the Virginia Institute of Technology. Further cooperative logistic support arrangements were put in place and have been constantly expanded and refined ever since. I was the Naval Attaché in Washington during the first Gulf War when these uh, arrangements were very seriously tested and they worked most successfully. These vital arrangements, which are so essential to sustaining our operational capability, continue to this day and, in my view, can be traced directly to the acquisition of the DDGs in the 1960s and their subsequent deployments in Vietnam. Nevertheless, I recall an incident in July 1970 which in two respects reflects the DDG experience there. The ship raced some 270 miles overnight to Northern Two Corps to support a massive helicopter assault by the US 4th Infantry Division. We'd generally been lucky with the mounts, but July brought a series of equipment failures which led to frustrating delays in answering calls for fire. There you have it. The ship's otherwise exemplary operational performance was hampered by problems with logistics in both maintenance and supply support. So the lessons were clearly there, but it took decades, literally decades, for them to be properly applied at home. There were, for example, in 1997, no fewer than 23 different and separate logistics support programs for the RAN. Those for Collins bore no relationship to those for ANZAC or for the Seahawks or for the FFGs or for any other platform or weapon system. It wasn't until the advent of software LCC1 and LCC2 that we could even compile a decent allowance list for new equipment. As always, there was the financial restriction of Division 181 in the defence budget, which was for naval ship repair and refit. Never, ever enough money. We never built an equivalent solid relationship between Naval Support Command and the Material Division that we saw between NAVSUP, NAVMAT and NAVC. I mentioned our enthusiasm for Subic Servmart and MOTU. Years later, we made half-hearted efforts to have our own Servmart in Sydney, but never managed to overcome the bureaucratic obstacles. The time and expense consequently wasted in running out to Zetland and later to Moorbank for bits and pieces were inexcusable. We did eventually establish motus, but they were not successful as we could never adequately man them, at least not in my time. A final thought. Hobart was commanded by a very experienced four-ring captain, Ross Swan. The specialists were all long course qualified. We were good, and so we should have been. But we were disconsolate to be told that we weren't the best DDG on station at that time. That distinction went to the USS Goldsboro with a far more junior wardroom. To me, then and now, that spoke volumes about the quality and particularly the relevance of our training. Though I say it myself, our two supply officers were the least well prepared. We'd grown up under a regime that was no longer to exist in the latter decades of the 20th century. I had already served nine years, seven under training, and knew it all, or at least I thought I did. 
My American counterparts, for the most part, were reserve officers, a couple of months out of supply school. For this presentation, my brief was logistics, but the DDG's experience and impact for me were broader than that. In subsequent postings as Staff Officer ILS in the Naval Material Division and as the Director of Naval Supply Research, for example, I had frequent occasion to reflect on my DDG experience. The DDGs brought us into touch with the modern world in so many other ways, embracing the structure of logistics support, project management, ship and aircraft tendering and contract management, and the relationship so essential to operational effectiveness between line and staff. In respect of our Edwardian Navy, their advent was its death knell. Of course, we would have caught up with the world eventually, but fortunately, the DDGs laid the groundwork to accept such change, which would otherwise have been a serious indigestion for our well-mannered existence. The acquisition of the DDGs came at a time in the USN when it translated from grant aid to foreign military sales with the introduction of cooperative logistics support arrangements for foreign buyers of whom we were but one, and we were caught on the hop. I'm still sent the Navy Supply Newsletter, a six-monthly professional journal that I instigated in 95. It canvasses the issues in Naval logistics today. I am honestly and truly in awe and admiration of the achievements and successes of the current generation of officers and sailors, and yet I see a direct line between the DDG experience and in what they now call the maritime logistics community. These men and women would have run circles around us in Vietnam, and that's the way it should be. Thank you. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this video and podcast. And uh, also we invite you to look at the website of the Un University of New South Wales Canberra Naval Studies Group page for more information about the series. And finally, we'd like to thank Navanti Australia for the generous support to this three-part series. Thank you. <laughs>